Welcome to the Idea Week podcast, where investors and entrepreneurs share their wisdom and insights into investing, business, and life. The Idea Week podcast is brought to you by MOI Global, the membership community of intelligent investors. Members of MOI Global enjoy special access to Idea Week, the annual winter summit that brings together investors and entrepreneurs in one-of-a-kind St. Moritz, Switzerland. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the conversation David Marcus, Chief Investment Officer of Evermore Global Advisors. And those of you in the MOI Global community who've been with us in the past uh, should know David quite well by now. He's uh, been very generous with his time and wisdom, uh, both uh, in uh, conversations such as this one, as well as uh, at our online conferences, presenting uh, some of his best ideas. Uh, What I'd like to do today, David, is delve uh, a little bit into... uh, your unique expertise in uh, owner operators, specifically in Europe. Um, It really uh, comes from uh, your background and some of the experiences you've been fortunate to have along the way. Um, And I think for all of us uh, listening, uh, we can really learn a lot about uh, how value in businesses is uh, built and grown over time. Um, particularly through folks that have a a stake in the business themselves, whether it's a family or a CEO. And and then we'll we'll talk about some concrete examples as well. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be very instructive. So maybe as a start, um, if you uh, wouldn't mind uh, going a little bit into your own background and uh, kind of how you got to meet uh, some of these owner operators uh, along the way and uh, perhaps uh, a few lessons uh, as well and then uh, we can follow up and delve deeper into some examples sure and john thank you for inviting me to participate in your podcast uh looking forward to spending some time with you here this afternoon um so my background is uh, I, I've been around a long time at this point, but I started in the business in 1987 uh, as an intern working for Michael Price at Mutual Series Fund, which later became Franklin Mutual when Michael sold the company to Franklin Templeton. Uh, I started there as an as a intern. I entered the telephones before the crash of 1987. I came back after I graduated in 88, and I stayed all the way till 2000. And along the way, I was lucky enough to learn from one of the great value investors. And so the good news was that we all sat in one big room. And so you got to listen to all the conversations going back and forth between Michael and the uh, analysts and the trading desk as well. And just understand, trying to understand and absorb and learn and sort of evolve to having your own perspective. Uh, And so I went from being an intern to being a, a junior trader, really a trading assistant on the trading desk, uh, as I like to tell people, you know, getting screamed at by Michael all the time. Uh, but that's the way I learned. Um, and then I became a junior analyst, senior analyst, and eventually a portfolio manager there. Uh, and so, but what I learned pretty quickly in the early 1990s, 
And, and by the way, just to round out my, my background, in 2000, I decided to move on to do my own thing. I started a partnership. My partner was a family from Sweden, uh, a man named Jan Stenbeck, who was the chairman of Shinovic, which is a holding company in Sweden. And he had six or seven other public companies that had all spun out of his family's holding company. And uh, I created a fund with him. Unfortunately, he died two years into our partnership. And at that point, I closed the fund. I returned the capital. I helped his family build their family office. They did not have one. I went on the boards of some of their companies. I helped them restructure businesses. I turned around a company called Millicom, which is a telecom business, which was almost in bankruptcy to, uh, in, in, in that period. And today is one of the uh, cornerstones of that family's wealth. Uh, so I got a lot of operating experience from sitting on the boards, helping them set strategy, change management, change boards, and so forth. And once I thought the family was in good shape, I wanted to get back to what I love, which is picking stocks. So then in 2004, I partnered with a group in New York City, a private equity group, uh, to launch a fund where I would take large stakes in small companies in Europe, good businesses that had stumbled utilizing the operating experience that uh, I had gathered over the prior years, sort of taking a private equity approach to public companies. I ran that from 04 to 08, um, and kind of in 08, I decided to transition to going back to my roots, which was in the mutual fund business. And so uh, with, along with a partner who worked with me at, at Mutual Series back in the 80s and 90s, we decided to build a 40-act mutual fund and bring everything we had ever learned to it. Uh, public equity knowledge, private equity knowledge, operating experience, this extensive global network of individuals and families, and kind of charge a mutual fund price, no performance fee, and just kick it off that way. And so that's the business that we have today. We manage over 1.1 billion, about half that is in our mutual fund, and then we have managed accounts, all with the same strategy and the same focus. But sort of what sort of uh, got me into focusing on family-controlled businesses, owner-operator style investments, it really came from going to Europe uh, in the early 90s. Sweden was the first country that I had ever uh, visited. And what I quickly realized, and they were going through a financial crisis. The banks were really bust. Government bailed them out. Um, they were spinning up all kinds of interesting assets into new companies on the stock exchange. But what I quickly realized was that there were families and individuals that dominated companies. So in Sweden, you had the Wallenberg family who controlled Astra. Today, it's AstraZeneca. Uh, they controlled Electrolux, SKF, Saab, Scania, um, Ericsson, a whole bunch of, of, of companies. Uh, you had the family that started H&M. You had the Stenbeck family who became my partners years later, who controlled a whole bunch of telecom and media assets. And I just, I realized that when you saw these these families or individuals that, that owned 30, 40, 50, 60% of the company, they had just such a different perspective. They weren't quick buck guys. They weren't trying to just make a buck and get out. They took a real long-term perspective. They made decisions that they believed would add real value over time, not necessarily overnight. 
they would spend for a new product or services or R&D that if you were sort of a regular public company with quarterly reporting and no main shareholder, you might not even make those investments because the payoff might just be too far away. And if you're a public company CEO who's, let's just say, a hired hand, you just may not want to take the risk that you'll even be here when that pays off. And so these, the, and I always focus on, on, on public companies, but so these families were making real decisions um, to, to really create wealth uh, for themselves and for their shareholders. But I have to say, when you get into it, you start to realize uh, there's all kinds. There's the ones that want to create real shareholder value for all shareholders. There's the ones that want to create real shareholder value for only some shareholders themselves. Uh, and they don't want you to ride their coattail. They just want to make the money and you kind of don't. Um, and there's everything in between. There's good uh, stewards of capital. There's generational transitions that the next generation just doesn't have it in them to really uh, think like an owner. And instead, they start destroying value. So just like with anything else, you have to do your homework. You have to understand who they are, what their thoughts are. And that's why, me, and, and, and that's why meeting the families, to me, was so critical. Because my view was I could meet the CEO or the CFO, but the fact is, if somebody owned 30, 40, or 50% of the company, getting to know what they thought was so critical, because they could fire the management tomorrow. Uh, and so understanding what the main owner's vision, if they had a vision, thoughts, ideas were to create value over time was absolutely critical to helping assess these companies. And so for the way I look at these companies, we call these compounders. So every value investor has their own definition of a compounder. But for us, they're generally family controlled businesses. They've been around an extremely long period of time. They've cranked out huge total returns to shareholders if they traded a discount. And they're led by dynamic value creators. And so maybe that's sort of a quick overview of the kinds of things that, that uh, we like to focus on. Great. Uh, well, maybe we could um, touch on, on some of the early compounders you, you came across um, that helped you sort of shape your own investment approach in that regard, uh, because I assume it's it kind of evolved out of some examples uh, that you saw along the way, uh, where the wealth creation over a long period of time was just so impressive. You know, what were some of those early examples, perhaps, and uh, what did you what what stuck stood out to you uh, from those? Sure. And well, as I said, you know, I started in Sweden and, and eventually I worked my way across Europe and then even jumped over to Asia. But it was true everywhere that a lot and a lot of these companies just existed forever and they just had no real external shareholder base. And so they were always cheap stocks. But in Sweden, in the early days, we we were looking at companies like Investor, a holding company for the Wallenbergs. Shinovic, which is the, uh, or maybe in America we'd say Kinovic, uh, which is the holding company for the Stenbeck family. But also in Sweden, there was a company called Rotos, 
R-A-T-O-S, uh, that turned into a great compounder because they kind of transformed their thinking into more private equity style, making really interesting investments. There were, were uh, a number of these. Some of them just don't exist anymore because eventually their cheapness uh, and so the ones that had strong managers and good decision-making that were real compounders continue on today. The ones that kind of didn't live up to the billing uh, in some cases became targets um, or the main owners eventually kind of exited their own companies during a generational shift. Uh, but yeah, so so investor, we learned a lot about um, all the companies connected to uh, the Wallenberg Group. Um, and I would say, look, I have huge respect for those guys today, but the fact is over many years, they didn't create as much value as some of the other groups. I thought Shinovic created an enormous amount of value because they were visionaries in telecom and media. They launched the first commercial TV channels in parts of the Nordics. Uh, they were really the first non-state uh, controlled telecom operator in so many markets, both in Europe and in emerging uh, Asia and Latin American markets, very ahead of the game. And uh, so just seeing, and, and so reaching out to the, the heads of these families, and, and frankly, at the beginning, boy, these guys just didn't want to talk to investors. That's just not what they did. They had, you know, you'd go talk to the CEO, go talk to the IR guy if they had one. Um, and as I said before, I wanted to know what the key players, the owners were thinking. So I would just keep calling them until they would meet with me. And I was extremely diligent in just not giving up. This was sort of pre-internet. So you literally had to call them. And then I started FedExing them letters. Uh, always respectful, always requesting a meeting, always praising them for the value they created. And then saying, but before I can really be a big shareholder, I want to understand how they think. Can I come and meet them? And after a while, I, when, once you had enough of them, I was able to use the first batch as references for the next batch. And so I continued to grow this network over time. And frankly, I didn't realize that other people weren't doing this. And so I would find that I was the only investor some of these guys had ever met. I just didn't do it. And they were just as intrigued by what was happening in the U.S. as I was in intrigued with what they were doing in their countries and their markets. And so it was a great sort of cross sharing of thoughts and perspectives globally. Um, but uh, there's a company in Spain called Alba, A-L-B-A. I think technically it's CF Alba, public company, controlled by Juan March and his brother. That was one of the early ones that I met. Smart investors, just good at identifying they're value guys. These guys are just classic value investors. They understood the Spanish market better than anybody. And they just were ex extremely talented at finding businesses that were misvalued, buying stakes, taking board seats, and, and sort of helping nurture these businesses over many years. And so I, you might look at it and say, boy, that was a sleepy company, but it was a true compounding machine for many, many years. Uh, and so if that's sleeping, hey, stay asleep. And uh, so on the, those guys were, were, I'll say, stock pickers and investors. 
where others were more business builders, Shinovic business builders. They were creating new businesses, uh, not just picking stocks. Um, and so the different, the different sort of perspectives um, was also very sort of educational to understand the nuance of different families, how they thought about investing or their businesses and so forth. But one of the holdings we have today is, is Bolleray. Uh, that's the Bolleray Group in France. That's a 195 or 96 year old business. Uh, the sixth generation of the family, Vincent Bolleray runs it. Well, I first met him over 20 years ago, uh, well over 20 years ago when uh, in France, it was still French francs before the Euro existed. And it was a much smaller group then. They didn't have a lot of extra capital, but they had already started to really create a lot of value for shareholders. Uh, brokers didn't cover most of these stocks. You had to do your own work, do your own analysis. Uh, and because a lot of these heads of the families didn't want to meet with investors, it was hard to sort of, you're not looking for secrets, but you're trying to understand how people think about value creation, if they even think about it. So just continuously calling, putting an effort in, getting the meetings, and then trying to turn one meeting into two meetings, into three meetings, into maybe the beginnings of a relationship where you can chat with them. I still try to visit with uh, Mr. Bolleray a couple of times a year uh, in Paris, uh, and he's been generous enough to meet with me. Well, his, his holding company now has, a, I think, an 11 billion euro market cap, and they dominate all kinds of interesting uh, businesses and, and sectors. But what's so amazing is that the company is so different today from what it was back in those days uh, because they're dynamic value creators. I mean, go back to the early days, it was a company in, in Italy called Cheer, C-I-R. That's the De Benedetti family. So first it was uh, Carlo De Benedetti, who in his day was one of the most aggressive corporate raiders out there. Today, nobody even knows who he, who he was. Uh, but he created a holding company in Spain. Uh, he had his holding company in Italy. He had one in Belgium. And he would use these publicly traded holding companies to be a publicly traded base to go after undervalued assets in these different markets. Today, his son, Rodolfo, runs it. Rodolfo, in my view, is a very is sort of a student of value investing. He thinks about long-term compounding and long-term returns. He's not a corporate raider like his father. He's more of an investor. He's taking a longer-term approach. But he, and so when you have these generational shifts, you see how they are. Are they stewards of capital or are they just trying to collect the dividends? And they don't care about the business or the shareholders. Rodolfo cares about creating real value. He merged the different share classes over the years. So there's one share class, you're aligned with the family. Um, and he, he will buy back stock. He's refocused the holding company's assets. And so it's, it's, it's a very interesting group. We don't own it at this point, but it's a group that we, we track, we watch. I still talk to him several times a year. He is one of the most plug-in guys in that market. And he, Again, we, I'm not trying to just get something. I give as well. You have a, a dialogue, you share thoughts and ideas. It's really the only way to do it. Otherwise, you're not going to build a, a real network. I, I think a lot of a lot of 
investors don't think enough about building their network. But you can't just be a taker. It has to be a balancing act of giving and getting. And um, you find that there's all kinds of quirky ways that you could share thoughts and ideas when you get out in the world and talk to people. Uh, and you don't ask them about this quarter or next quarter or anything about it. You just start talking to them about how they think about their business, what businesses they like, what they don't like. Why did they exit this particular division or that over the years? What attracted them to that business that turned out to not be a good business? You know, you just want to understand why they did what they did. And when you kind of get away from fixating on the quarter, you can have real conversations. So we're not asking them about numbers. We're trying to understand the character, the judgment, the perspective of these guys and really understand the nuance. But look, in France today, you have, um, it just changed their name again, but it was, uh, it was GDF Suez. Before that, it was a Suez. After that, it was something else. But if you go back to the beginning, this was a, this was, so it's not just the family controlled owner operators. Sometimes it's just these big conglomerates that are left behind that you can latch onto that once had an owner. A Suez was one of those. That was one of the best things we ever invested in when it was a big, ugly conglomerate refocusing itself. But if you, and I know I'm jumping around a bit, but if you jump to Italy again, you have Exor. Exor is the Agnelli family holding company. Um, years ago, there were two holding vehicles. One was EFI and one was EFIL. Um, ultimately, those combined creating Exor. Exor is the holding company that owns, controls Chrysler, Fiat, Ferrari, uh, Alfa Romeo, um, and a bunch of other brands, but also Partner Re, a big reinsurer. They sold Cushman and, and Wakefield. Uh, they sold a business, a Swiss business called SGS. And so John Elkin, who's the head of the family, holding company, he has made a variety of changes over the last few years that completely changed the trajectory of his family's uh, total return profile and, and asset base. So again, dynamic value creator, we happen to own that in our portfolio. And John is in his early 40s, he's a young guy. He was really groomed by his grandfather to one day take over and he, he's been in charge now for over a decade. And um, he has great managers like Sergio Marchioni helping him manage the, uh, who runs the auto group for him. But look, these guys bought Chrysler from the U.S. government for just a, a, a brilliant cheap price uh, during the financial crisis. And it's just being opportunistic, taking advantage, but having this owner's mentality of long-term thinking, long-term approach. You don't get it as much when you have uh, as I say, the hired hands, the guys who are just brought in, they have good incentives, but it's so short-term focused. Um, and without digressing too far, I'll tell you, we've looked at some cases uh, that we can invest in where there's activists attacking companies. And our first question is, is this a short-term guy trying to make a quick buck? Or is this an opportunity for real value creation at this company? Because what we found is that sometimes our perspective is not to support the activist, it's actually to be anti-activist. Why? Because it's too hard to find really good ideas. And so if you have one, that could be the gift that keeps on giving. Why would you want a short-termer to come in, 
make a few bucks, get out, and it kind of kills the the magic money machine from evolving to, to spitting off more cash going forward. So it's taking your time, doing your homework. Um, and if you look, if, if, if uh, any of your listeners look at our portfolio, which if you go to evermoreglobal.com, you can find our portfolio and my letters and whatever else you might want to take a look at. Uh, if you're really bored, there's tons of stuff to read, uh, making even more bored. And what you'll see is we have our compounders, these family businesses, but then everything else that we have in our portfolio is more transactional. It's a special situation. It's a breakup. It's a spinoff. It's a restructuring that we plan to exit at some point. The compounders we're going to own for an extremely long period of time. And it is companies like Bolloray. Because look, Bolloray, so when I started Evermore Global back in 2010, Bolloray was 100 euros, but then they did 100 for one split. So let's say they were one euro. Today, it's about four and a half. So it's at four and a half times in eight years. This is almost a 200-year-old company that's still compounding at a ridiculously high rate. Uh, it's still undervalued. Now, when we bought it, we didn't say, oh, this is going to go up four or five X. It's just that they changed the nature of their profile along the way. That's the difference between these owner operators and some of the ones that are more passive. These are the kinds of guys who really look at capital allocation. What can they do to change their profile long term to accrete more value? They're not always worried about us as a shareholder. They might only care about themselves. But if they're not working against us so we can ride along with them, we're okay with that. We just want to make sure they're not working against us. But Bolloray owns 25% roughly of Vivendi. Vivendi, in turn, owns 100% of Universal Music Group, the largest music company in the world. And so when Mr. Bolloray went on the board of Vivendi and eventually amassed this big stake, it's been a complete transformation of Vivendi. We own Vivendi as well. Uh, before he got involved there, it was a value trap for a decade. So with him spearheading the, the leadership there, it's been a fantastic uh, investment for us. Um, we like to say that we're not just buying horses, we're buying jockeys. So for these compounders, these owner operators, these are jockeys. They have to be, a horse doesn't know what to do when it gets on the track. It might know what to run. It may not know which way and how fast or whatever. The jockey sets the tempo pushes them to, to sprint when he needs to sprint, slow down when he should slow, whatever it happens to be. I'm not into horses. I'm just using it as an example. And I think it's so critical to understand who these guys are. But we have continuously found that when you have a big shareholder in a company who is very focused on creating value, that it will generally compound better than companies that don't have a main owner driving it. Um, and it, it just keeps proving itself out, whether it's Bolloray, whether it's Exor, whether it's uh, Ackermans. It's a 100-year-old company in Belgium. Nobody ever talks about Ackermans. We love these guys. They just crank it out. They're so cheapo that when they can make an acquisition, you know it's a good deal because they just will never overpay for anything. And they're just good at acquiring assets at good prices and managing them very well. We have a company in Sweden called Lifco, uh, L-I-F-C-O, Lifco. That's controlled by a man named Carl Bennett. Carl is a phenomenal value creator. He owned 100% of this. He IPO'd it about 
just under three years ago. It's tripled since the IPO. Um, this is his collection of all kinds of odds and ends value stocks, that, uh, value businesses that he had acquired over many, many years. Everything from demolition robots for, uh, or robots for demolition for buildings, uh, to dental supplies, businesses that fit out ambulances, no synergies, but each very compelling. Value, and, and he targets businesses where he can generally either latch it onto something he already has that has solid management or where he's acquiring a good business with a good management, who in some cases are family-controlled businesses. So a lot of the subsidiaries are also family-controlled businesses. That owner-operator mentality, it just you just get better outcomes over time. It doesn't mean we won't buy other kinds of stocks, but we do have over 20% of our portfolio in these conglomerate compounders. And then we have another chunk of our portfolio in other businesses that are also tied to one main owner or a family. And again, the, 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 the TLC that these guys give to these holdings, it's, it's impressive. And the data proves it out that you can make better returns over time. But you have to have the patience to do the work, to get to know who the right groups are. And I don't want to leave you with the thought that just because there's a family there, you're gonna make money, that's not true. As I said at the beginning of this, there are some that sadly are not working for the shareholders, they're actually working against them. And so you have to look at their track record, their history, how do they treat investors in rough times and in good times? Um, what did they do? And um, when you find the right ones, I've touched on some of them today, you just want to latch on to them because in the end, to be very simple about it, they're doing all the hard work. Once we figured out who it is, they do all the hard work, we could kind of sit back and let them do all the work. And our investors will give us credit for the fact that we identified these companies. Uh, but whether it's the early ones that I talked about, Cheer, Alba, Watos, uh, uh, some of the other ones. Um, even just in, in Denmark, there's a company called NKT. Uh, there was a family there. They all kinds of family fights. They ended up, I think, what ended up happening was the family sort of couldn't agree with each other on so many things. They kind of exited the whole holding company, but that created an opportunity. That's sort of the not the normal way that we go, uh, but. You'll see sometimes over the generations, it's harder and harder for them to stay aligned. So that's part of our assessment as well. Um, some of the shipping companies we have are also family controlled and you just see a real, they're really tethered to the business and they treat it like a baby, like their baby, that they're nurturing, they're investing in, they're managing well. And they're, as I said before, not trying to make a quick buck, but really build value. Uh, and so um, that's how we focus. I think it's paid off extremely well for our investors over time, not overnight. And um, I'm surprised that other people don't focus this way. And in fact, if you look at our any page on our website or even on our business cards, our tagline is invest like owners because we, we take an owner's mentality in everything that we look at. Would we want to own this whole company Could we, if we could? 
If the answer is no way, well then why should we own even one share? So it's really taking that owner owner mentality, that owner earnings, that perspective of of of, of a different way of thinking than just trying to make a quick buck. And David, uh, you've gotten to know many of these uh, owner-operated companies over the years. Uh, how much uh, of a priority is it for you today to try to find new companies um, that meet your criteria, that are perhaps smaller, earlier in their life cycle? I think it's always important to keep your eyes open for new ideas, but even new ones. Um, we're not looking for startups. We're looking, but but they might be younger uh, in their history, but not necessarily startups. Um, and we always want to look. Even when we bought Lifco, uh, a couple of, started buying it a couple of years ago. That was an IPO. He had been acquiring these businesses for I don't know twenty to thirty years. You just couldn't participate with them. He put it into a public vehicle, probably more for estate planning. They IPO'd 50, uh, 45% of it. And we're always on the lookout. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing when we have managers here from all kinds of companies, not just the families, but the um, just regular operating businesses. I will generally, the, one of my early questions to the CEO will be, or the chairman, Tell me about your background and your history. And I like to hear their background and their history because many times they're like, you want to know my background? Because they're, they're, they're frankly, they're not used to being asked that because most people will just look at their CV or their bio on the website or on their pitch book, and that's good enough. We really want to know what drove you to even want to be part of this company uh, that you're now running and understand who they are because we are betting on people. So to your point, yes, we're always looking to understand better who people are, what they bring to the table. Um, and it's, it's so important to understand that because sometimes that's the difference between success and failure in an investment. It's the quality of the management um, and the guidance from their main owner, if there's a main owner uh, at all. And I think it's, it's so it's not just the ones from the old days where we sort of honed our skills um, because just to do a quick flashback, some of these earlier ones way back, they were family controlled and they didn't always think of shareholders. You know, the Lazard group before it was a public company with three different partnerships, there were all these quirky little holding companies in France that owned stakes in the different partnerships and they really didn't care about shareholders or investors at all. Um, but they change over time. You know, one of the other big families in France, so you talk about new ones, sometimes new ones are old ones. So without trying to freak you out with saying that, what I would, what I mean by that is there's a holding company uh, in France. It's one of the oldest families in banking period in the world, not just in France. And I rem and they were in New York just a few weeks ago, and I was meeting with them. And they're doing the roadshow. They maybe their first time that they're really trying to get investors to focus on their holding company. And uh, this is the Rothschild Group. Um, and 
the company is now Rothschild, and but previously it was it had a different name, Parry Orleone. So they eventually realized, oh, their name has value. Maybe we should change the company's name to our to their own name. And but but what was amazing? The reason I say an old company is a new company is now they're focused on talking to shareholders. There's a discount to the sum of the parts. They want investors to know what they're all about, and they're out there talking. But I pointed out to the management that came to New York that 15 years ago when I met one of the family members, he basically, it took me a long time to get a meeting, but once I got in the door there, he basically said that, you know, look, our stock's overvalued. You shouldn't own it. If you happen to own any shares, I'll help you sell it. We'll help you find a buyer. It's really just for the family to trade amongst itself. You shouldn't waste your time with it. And so, of course, as soon as I got back to my office, I bought more, and it did extremely well. But I realized they didn't care if uh, shareholders were there. In fact, they were discouraging shareholders because they didn't want everybody outside the family to really know what they had going on. Um, and the management team that was in New York a couple of weeks ago, they kind of were, on one level, I think they were just mortified when I told them the story. At the same time, they were kind of laughing, saying, yeah, we understand that was the old way of thinking here. We're different now. So as I say, it's sort of like an old company that has a new approach to realizing that um, the market's not going to reward you appropriately if you're not communicating, giving perspective. They now publish their information in English as well as in French. Uh, little odds and ends like that make a lot of difference. And so, again, old ones can become new ones. Do we own it today? We don't. Are we more interested than we were previously? Of course we are, uh, because I think the market really hasn't woken up yet to the fact that this company has a different perspective now. Um, and so that's something we focus on as well. Is there a change at hand? Is there a generational shift? Uh, what's going on to, in Asia, you're on the cusp of seeing all kinds of these family-controlled businesses going through generational transitions. Uh, C.K. Hutch, which is Lee Kai-shing's company, he's, I don't know if he's 90, if he's not 90, he's 89. You know, he's pretty, pretty much uh, older than I am. And uh, that's going to transition to his son, who he's been grooming for many, many years. We're seeing that happening in parts of Asia. You're seeing German uh, mid-sized companies going through generational shifts as well, that are family businesses where the next generation just actually may not be interested to, to run it, to own it uh, the same way as the previous generation was. So we're, we're at a, such a great point in time for these kinds of investments where you're seeing change go on. New, yeah, as I say, new entrants, new focus, uh, old companies coming back to realize that they have misjudged mis, uh, the whole environment of, of public markets and should, should sort of embrace it rather than fight it to get more appropriately valued. Uh, you have the sleepers like Ackerman's Van ha and Van Haren in Belgium that we own that just don't do much talking. They just do a lot of doing, meaning smart investing both private and public equities that they've acquired over the years. So it's the whole smattering of different kinds of companies. When you add them all together, it's extremely powerful and it can really help you um, 
it, it actually, in the long run, I think, is also helping smooth some of the volatility that you have as a special situations investor, which we are. So we're, all of our other companies uh, are restructurings, breakups, turnarounds, transformations. These family-controlled businesses, they generally compound well. And when you get the aberrant situation, you have to just be ready to pounce and take advantage. You know, in the first quarter of 2016, Exor was down, I think, 48% in the first seven weeks of the year. No news. Investors, uh, maybe investors thought nobody would ever buy a car again. I, I don't know. Uh, it just was down, it literally halved in six or seven weeks. We dealt, I think we almost doubled the position. We were nibbling every single day. And by the end of the year, it was only down 1%. This year, it's up, I think, around high 20s or 30% so far. So it was, it was a great window to buy it. So when you get these aberrations, when these family control businesses do, for some reason, sell off, if nothing else has changed, you have to just take advantage. It sets the, the, the trajectory for your compounding at a, at a better level. We really got to average in at a, at a great level. So that was a gift for us and our investors as well. Same with Bolare. They own the port in Liberia. And when Ebola uh, sadly broke out a couple of years ago in Liberia, their whole stock uh, price uh, and market cap collapsed because of, they had one tiny port in that country. Uh, and investors just dumped the whole thing. And that was just a wonderful period as an investor, uh, and I'm not making light of the situation at hand, but my point is investors over uh, sort of, they extrapolated one issue to the entirety of the, of the company. And uh, that kind of a crisis gives you a window to add. And that's what we did. Um, you, want, you don't want to be doing what everybody else is doing, that's for sure. You want to be independent thinkers. Buy when it's the right time to buy, sell when it's the right time to sell. Selling and buying shouldn't be the same. You shouldn't think, oh, I have to sell this to buy that, or I have to, you know, those decisions shouldn't be connected. You sell when it's the time to get out of something, you buy when it's the time to get into something. And if we have a pile of cash in the in-between phase, so be it. We don't ever feel like we have to be invested unless we have the right ideas. David, you've focused uh, on Europe, obviously, uh, a lot. You did mention uh, Asia briefly just there. Um, how much are you looking outside of Europe at this point? Obviously, Asia is seen as the next uh, frontier in terms of growth and wealth creation. Are you actively um, scouting for compounders there as well we are um look our our fund is a global fund we can go anywhere in the world but we don't have to go anywhere we're just opportunistic investors we have about 70 percent of the fund today in europe we have about uh uh 15 here in the u.s and then we have sort of, let's say, mid to high single digits in Asia. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot in Asia, but four years ago, we had zero in Asia. So we're up to eight or 9% in Asia from zero. 
Europe four years ago was about 42%. Now it's just about 70. The US was 40. Now it's 15. So we just go from the bottom up. We're very nomadic. We can round, roam around the world looking for ideas. But a lot of the, car- and, and by the way, Europe, before I jump over to Asia to your question, I will tell you, I still believe that the greatest period I've had in my investment career was in the early 90s when I first started going to the Nordics, when Sweden was in that banking crisis. Some of the best investments were during those early years. I think Europe is in the same boat again, meaning, because by the way, the Swedish banks today, some of them are the strongest in the world, not just uh, in Europe, but the rest of Europe is going through this monstrous change, spinoffs, breakups, restructurings, transformations, less willingness to to put off to tomorrow what needs to be done to today. So it's this refocusing of companies and this less willingness to uh, accept excuses from management. And so a lot's happening. It's a very exciting time to be an investor in European special situations, that's for sure. Well, Asia is bubbling up as well. That's what's exciting there as well. So in Japan, the framework has changed. This Abe government has put all kinds of interesting rules and regulations in place to try to get the economy going, but it allows for companies to break up with tax-free spinoffs. It allows board members to be paid with, with equity where it's not taxable like it was in the past. So there's all kinds of things going on. The framework's changed. Companies are yet to, to really adopt it in a big way, but it's changing. Of course, ownerships are unwinding slowly, but it's happening. So special situation, that's Japan. You go to other parts of Asia, you're seeing family fights in some holding companies, you're seeing hostile bids. So you're seeing an environment that we've seen in other markets for many years. And so what that means is that there are opportunities that will come along that we need to be aware of. So uh, I'm kind of already planning my travel schedule for, for next year. I know I'll be in Europe I don't know, no less than four times, but probably six times, which would be once every other month. And then we will have probably one big or two trips to Asia along the way as well. Um, and But I look, more companies than ever before are coming here. The key is to see them here and there. You ask the same questions here that you'll ask there, you get a slightly different answer. Why? Because when they're here, they're on a roadshow. When they're there, they're just talking about their business. So you just want to have a perspective of what they're telling everybody and what they really think. Uh, and, and again, not looking for secrets, but just trying to understand how people think about their business when they're not in sales mode trying to market you. Uh, and so Asia is bubbling up. Uh, for us, it's one-offs. Um, but listen, our whole portfolio is one-offs. We have 34 one-offs that we've, we've uh, come across over time. And um, it's, it's such a ripe market for uh, this kind of special situation uh, investing. Uh, and so we are extremely busy. We probably just am adding to the investment team because I want to make sure that we have enough bandwidth. It's not that we have to cover everything. We don't. Uh, but to find the few names that we want to buy, we have to look at many. And uh, the key is to have a tight filter. 
not be enamored by every shiny thing that comes by, but know what we're looking for. And when we find it, we bite into it and we don't let go. Well, on that note, uh, David, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for another fascinating conversation. Uh, it's always a pleasure to learn from your unique perspective. Sure, John. Thank you. Happy to do it. And uh, would love to do it again if you'd like to do it at some point in the future. Absolutely. And uh, I do very much look forward to having you with us uh, at Idea Week in uh, St. Moritz and to continuing the conversation there as well. Yes, absolutely. Looking forward to that as well. Thank you. Thank you, David. Goodbye for now. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Idea Week podcast, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the membership community of intelligent investors. Learn more at moiglobal.com.